Thanks, Tim. Good morning, guys. It's good to see you. And uh, like Tim said, I just want to reiterate something he mentioned a moment ago, that um, this afternoon is our very first uh, intro class at the Medina East Campus. So if you're newer here and you're looking to learn more about our heart and our history, we'd encourage you to come out to that. It's not too late to sign up, and so you can do that as well. Um, thanks for being here. If you are new, we're just so glad you're able to make it with us this morning as we're continuing in a series that we've been calling Jesus in His Own Words. And uh, let me just kind of give you a little bit of the synopsis of this series. If you are just jumping in today. Uh, we started this series last week on Easter Sunday, and uh, basically what we're doing through the series is we're kind of conducting a little bit of an investigation. It's been our hope through this series. And the investigation is sort of prompted by a tension that we've noticed in our culture. And, uh, and that's basically this. Last week we talked about this tension. We said that on one hand, we, we live today, 21st century America, Medina, Ohio, uh, Wadsworth, Ohio, wherever you're from, Ohio. Uh, we live in the midst of what I like to call a Jesus-saturated culture. And, and what I mean by that is that um, you would be hard-pressed to find someone today in our current day that is not familiar with at least the basic teachings about Jesus. And, uh, and so you see Jesus come up, the conversation about Jesus comes up in every major arena, comes up in politics, you see it come up in every major religion, there's opinion of Jesus, you see it come up in, uh, in all different types of cultural venues. And so our culture is one that is Jesus-saturated, we're all familiar uh, with the name of Jesus and with some of the basic truths. But on the other hand, this is where the tension lies, while it is true that we are a Jesus-saturated culture, we are also a Jesus-confused culture. And what we mean by that is that there are so many different presentations, there are so many different opinions about who Jesus is in our culture that it can be hard for a person who's investigating Jesus to discern who he really is. And so my guess is for some of you, that's probably where you're at this morning. Some of you are here this morning and you're investigating Jesus. You're not quite sure what you believe. You're still trying to figure that out about Christ. And for you, maybe, if, honestly, if I asked you, what do you think about Jesus? You might say, I'm confused. I don't know. For some of you, you might be like, I don't really buy into the whole Jesus thing. And to be honest with you, I can't blame you because there are so many different presentations. There are so many different opinions. It can be hard to determine who Jesus really is. So in this series, this is the investigation that we're conducting. We're asking the question, not what does culture say about Jesus? We're, we're asking the question, not what does religion, not even what does religion say about Jesus, but we're really asking the question, what does Jesus say about Jesus? Right? What is Jesus in his own words? What does he have to say about himself. So through this series, what we've been doing is, uh, is we've been investigating each week a different claim that Jesus made about himself, something Jesus said about himself. And then after, we've investiga after we investigate that claim, we're asking two questions. Question number one we're asking is, um, if this is true about Jesus, if he said this, what does that mean about him? And secondly, if this is true about Jesus, then what does that mean for us? What are the implications for you and I? So last week we started that. Like I said, each week we're looking at a different uh, uh, claim that Jesus made about himself. This week we want to look at the second one in our series. And so let's just get right into it. If you guys have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to grab them with me. Go to John chapter 6. All right, John 6 is where we're going to uh, spend our morning and uh, looking at the next claim of Jesus. Jesus in his own words, John chapter 6. Let me just say as you get there, that if uh, you didn't bring a Bible, if you uh, didn't, didn't, don't have a Bible of your own, if you want to just grab one, we have some provided for you. And you can get to page 744 of those Bibles that we have provided out there for you. And uh, we're going to look at John chapter 6 together. And let me just also say that if you're a person that just doesn't own a Bible outright, if you don't own a Bible or you don't own a newer translation of the Bible, maybe you can do me a favor and you could just take one of ours, write your name in it, make it a gift from us to you. We think it's really, really, really important that you own a Bible and that you can interact with it. We think there's a lot of power in this book. We uh, rely on it. So if you want to grab one of those, that'd be awesome. 
So John chapter 6, page 744. All right? As you flip there, let me just give you some context of what we're about to read today because the, the, the statement that we're going to see Jesus make about himself is one that only makes sense in the context of, of the passage. And so let me just kind of frame it up for you before we jump in. So basically, here's what's going on. In the Gospel of John, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, uh, basically what it is, is it's John, who is a disciple of Jesus. In fact, most likely probably Jesus' closest friend uh, when, he was on this, when he was doing ministry on this earth. And, and we see this guy, John, writing about his experiences with Jesus. And so he talks about his ministry. He talks about his teaching. He talks about uh, everything that happened in Jesus' lifetime here. And what we see in John is we see this progression take place. Jesus begins his ministry. Um, Jesus starts teaching. The Bible says that as he teaches, crowds come to hear him, and more people invite people to come interact because he teaches like one who has authority, and people come listen to him. The Bible says that he starts to perform miracles, and the people love that. They just think it's incredible, and so they're inviting all these people. And so, and so the Bible says, basically, from John chapter 1 to John chapter 6, we see Jesus growing in popularity. And more and more people are coming to follow Jesus, and more and more people are coming to hear Jesus, and more and more people are signing up to be Jesus' disciples, to follow him around. And this all happens till you get to about John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, what we're about to watch is that Jesus pretty much reaches the pinnacle of his popularity. This is really the peak for him. This is the climax of his popularity in his ministry. So much so that at the beginning of John chapter 6, we are told, he is speaking to a crowd of people where there are 5,000 men. And, and that's important, by the way, that the Bible indicates to us that there was 5,000 men. And that's important because of this. Back in this culture, whenever they would assess the size of a crowd, they would only count the men. They wouldn't count the women or the children. It's just the way it was in, in that culture. So no offense to you ladies, no offense to you babies. Um, but it, in this culture, it was, they just counted the men. And, and so it is very reasonable to think that there was probably more like twenty to 25,000 people who would have been there during this time. So I just want you to get this in your mind. Jesus, at this stage, has reached like rock star status. Everyone is coming to see Jesus. Everyone is loving Jesus. His teaching is phenomenal. He's doing these miracles, and people have relatives who have been healed by Jesus. Everyone wants to be with Jesus, and this is the climax of his popularity. So the Bible says he's got this crowd of 5,000 people, 5,000 men, along with these others, and he's teaching them, and then Jesus realizes that they haven't had a meal yet. And so Jesus does this unbelievable miracle, a very famous miracle. Some of you know what he does. He grabs one boy's lunch, he divides that one boy's lunch, and out of that miraculously feeds every person in the audience. And the Bible says when that happens, the crowd goes nuts. They absolutely, I mean, they already love Jesus. They're all, all coming after Jesus right now. But now Jesus does a miracle that directly benefits everyone in the audience. The Bible says that everyone is just in love with Jesus now. And you can only imagine, this must have been, for Jesus, this must have been such a climactic time. The disciples, they would have been like rock stars too because they were part of the inner circle. So everyone would have loved the disciples. They would have want to be around the disciples. And this is the climax of Jesus's popularity. So this is all happening. In fact, if you just have your Bibles, if you just glance down with me at verse 14 and 15, I want to show you the extent to which the people loved Jesus at this time. It says, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, after he fed everybody, right, and everyone had their fill, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. By the way, that little term, the prophet, was a suspicion that Jesus might have been the Messiah. Like, this might be him. This might be the guy. This might be the one 
that in Judaism everyone is predicting to come. This might be the Messiah. Now look at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So catch this. This is crazy. They wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. They're like, this is awesome. He's feeding us. He's doing his great. This guy's the best thing ever. Let's take him by force and make him king. Now, I don't know about you. When I first read that, I remember thinking to myself, man, isn't that what Jesus would have wanted, though? Like, isn't that what the disciples and Jesus wanted? Didn't they want a larger platform so they could tell more people about God? Didn't Jesus want to become the king? I mean, isn't that part of what he talks about, that he's the king of the Jews and those types of things? Wouldn't Jesus want to leverage um, that level of influence so that he could make a major impact? Wouldn't he have wanted that? And yet in the scripture we see that when they wanted to make Jesus king, that Jesus discerned something was wrong in their hearts. And rather than embracing that, Jesus retracted from it. He went and he hid from the guy. He actually went and hid, trying to make him king, and he hides. So here's what happens. The Bible says that they're coming after him. They want to make him king. Jesus hides. And it says that the disciples get in some boats, and they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been seven miles from where this miracle took place. Jesus does that crazy thing where he walks on water, which that's a whole other sermon. We're not even going to get into it. Jesus walks on water, gets to the other side of the lake, and the next day, everyone's trying to find Jesus. They're all looking for him because he did this incredible miracle and they're all in love with him. So they're all looking for Jesus and they finally find him on the other side of the lake. And this is where I want to pick up our story today. So let's look at verse 25 together. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, when they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? So when they found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they're, they're like baffled, like, how in the world did you get here? You're, you know, they had no idea about the water walking thing, but this was crazy for them. And so look at Jesus' answer in verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, I love that, by the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed in Scripture, there are many times where Jesus has asked a question, and Jesus answers by not answering the question they asked at all. He just, like, look at this, it's crazy. They're like, when did you get here? And he looks at him, he's like, I'm telling you, you're here because I gave you food. He doesn't even, he's like, cut the small talk. Not even going to talk about how my trip was and how I got here. I need to get right to the heart of the matter. Because remember, Jesus discerned that something was wrong. And he points it out here. You could see it. He confronts them on it directly in verse 26. He says, I tell you, you're looking at me, not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. In other words, here's what he's saying. He says, you guys are coming to me. He's like, I can see right into your heart. I know your motivations. And you're coming to me not because of who I am. You're coming to me because of what I gave you. That's why you're here. In other words, you have a consumeristic itch, and you're hoping that I'll scratch it for you. Yesterday, I gave you food, and you love me, and you wanted to make me your king. And so now today, you come back not because of who I am, not because you're interested in what I have to say, not because you're interested in the message that I have to bring, but because you're thinking with your stomachs. That's what you're after. You're after temporal food, and you're hoping that that's what I'll provide for you. So Jesus just gets right down to it. He's like, let me just go right to your heart. And then in verse 27, he says something so profound. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus says something interesting here. He says, don't work 
That is, don't pour your energy, don't, take your, don't pour your investment, don't pour your life into food that spoils. Now, what's Jesus doing here? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. We're going to find this out in a second. The disciples have no idea what he's talking about, by the way, when he says this. They will find out eventually, but they have no idea. In fact, for some of us, when we look at this, we have no idea what Jesus is talking about. So let me just tell you what he's doing. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he's actually drawing a metaphor for us. Okay? And the metaphor is he's using physical food to, to describe a spiritual reality that exists. And he's saying in the same way that all of us have um, physical hunger, and when we eat, it fulfills us for a moment, momentary fulfillment, but will leave us hungry again. He says that that's also the picture of a spiritual reality. There's a spiritual reality, and that's this, that inside of each one of us, there is a spiritual hunger. There is a, there is a, a void that exists in all of our hearts, and I don't think I need to talk very much about it for you to know exactly what I'm talking about. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is something inside of us, a hunger that's inside of us that, that, that is sort of unquenchable. We don't really know how to, to, to satisfy that hunger. Blaise Pascal puts it this way. He says that there's a God-shaped vacuum inside of all of us. There's this void. There's this emptiness. There's this thing that we can't quite put our finger on. But it's something that all of us are trying to fulfill. We're all trying to find satisfaction. And so Jesus uses this illustration. And he says, listen, I don't want you to invest your life. I don't want you to work. I don't want you to invest all of your energy simply in the things that are going to leave you hungry again, simply in things that are going to give you momentary satisfaction, but are going to leave you desiring more again, right? And this, this, by the way, this illustration that Jesus is drawing is something that all of us can easily understand because we're all people, we all eat, right? And so this is an illustration that we're all aware of several times a day. I know when I was reading this, the, the, obviously the first illustration that comes to my mind is last Easter, right? So last Sunday, a great, great example of this. For me, and I'm sure for you too, Easter is historically a day where I eat too much. It's just what I do on Easter, just like on Christmas and on every major holiday and most days as well. I just eat too much. And so uh, Easter was no exception, right? So what happened on Easter? Well, if your Easter is anything like mine, I'm guessing it probably was. Here's what I did. Came to church, um, and, and of course that was awesome. Had a blast. And then afterwards, um, we, me and my wife had two stops. And our, me and my boys and my wife had two stops. We were going to go to her side, and we are going to go to my side. So we went to her side, and, and on her side, her grandma wanted to go to this Easter buffet. I don't know if you guys have ever been to one of these things. It's like a one-time, one-day buffet that it, like they it just shows up for a day and it's gone never never there again and so she's like i want to go to this easter buffet so we did all right now i like buffets a lot because it's all you can eat right and i like totally i'm totally gonna rip them off i'm gonna get my money's worth so i go there and they have ham and they have prime rib and they had shrimp and they had all you can eat bacon which to me equals heaven you know, and I've never investigated how much is all I can eat with bacon. I found out, and it's a lot. And, and I just, I ate a lot. I just ate so much. And of course, I wanted to get my money's worth, so I got several plates of food. And then by the time I was done eating, right, I, I was like, oh, I cannot take another bite. Like, I was loosening the belt, almost falling into a coma, eat too much moment, right? And then we got in the car, got the kids all situated, and went over to my parents' house. We get to my parents' house, and guess what? They have out. They have ham, and, they, and I love ham. And they have food, and they have desserts. And so guess what? I was like, I'm ready to go again. 
Here we go. So I got another plate. Loaded it up. Ate ham again. Ate so much to the point where I was like, I can't eat anymore. And then went outside because it was beautiful. We had an egg hunt. Came back in. I sat down in front of the TV with some other relatives. Fell asleep. Took a ham-induced nap, which is always good. And guess what happened when I woke up? It's like, I want a ham sandwich. So I went upstairs and I had a ham sandwich. And all I'm saying is it's the same metaphor that Jesus is drawing here, is that you fill yourself up on this stuff, but it leaves you hungry again. And, and Jesus is drawing a spiritual metaphor for these people, and he's saying don't live your life in such a way that you're perpetually pursuing things that are going to satisfy you temporarily, but are going to leave you hungry again. Now back in this culture, uh, this was a hand-to-mouth culture. So these people were mostly lower class people. Most of them would have been, right? And they would have been farmers. They would have been fishers. They would have been people who, whatever they, they produced that day, would have been what they ate that night. And so for them, providing food was much more than food. Providing food for them was much more than a meal. It was providing security. It was providing uh, provision for them. It was providing the, the solution to their biggest worries and anxieties in life. And so the reason that they were so excited to come to Jesus is because they thought he will be the one who can satisfy this temporary appetite, that the source of all of my worries, anxieties, the thing that I'm looking to, to find security. Now, in our culture, we don't really operate that way, right? For us, the food thing isn't a big thing. We're not real concerned about where our next meal is coming from. For most of us, we're trying to eat less. That's our thing, right? But in our culture... There are temporary appetites that we pursue that we believe are going to fulfill us but ultimately leave us hungry again. I think one of the greatest examples of this, actually uh, a great illustration of this, is an illustration that comes from a guy um, named Mark Sayers. Mark Sayers wrote this amazing book that if you get a chance to pick it up, you should. It's called The Trouble with Paris. And in this book, he introduces this idea of something that he says for our culture is a temporary appetite that many of us are pursuing. And he calls it hyperreality. Hyperreality, and this is what he means by hyperreality. So let me just get, help. Maybe you can just engage this a little bit. Hyperreality, he says, it's an exaggeration of life. It's a presentation of life that exceeds reality. Basically, hyperreality, uh, according to Mark Sayers, is an embellishment uh, of of reality as we know it. Let me help clarify this a little bit more. There's a sociologist named Krishan Kumar, and he was speaking about this idea of hyperreality. Here's what he said. He said, our world has become so saturated with images and symbols that a new electronic reality has been created whose effect is to obliterate any sense of an objective reality lying behind the images and symbols. It is, it is uh, in this simul simulated world, images become objects rather than reflecting them. Realities become hyper-realities. And he says, it is no longer possible to distinguish imagery from the real and the true from the false. And what's he saying? He's saying that in our culture, one of the major things that we are chasing after, and it's an illusion, is hyper-realities that are produced to us. So let me give you some illustrations if you're not catching that. So think for a minute about when you go to the grocery store, and what do you see? You see the, you see the magazine racks, right? And on the magazine covers, what do you see? You see these impossibly beautiful people on the covers of these magazines. Now, now, this for us is our standard in our culture. This is the standard of beauty and attraction. The truth is, you and I know this. If you actually think about it for a little bit more than a couple of minutes, that there is a whole story behind that image, that there's a whole team of people who have been working diligently to create for us a hyper-reality and project that image to us. So for example, that picture you see on the cover of that magazine, you and I know that there are teams of people who have worked together on that image. And so there's professional photographers 
who have professional cameras with professional lenses and professional filters on those lenses. They have professional lighting and the lighting is done in just a such, such a way that it's just perfect and they have professional makeup artists who work on hair, who work on makeup, who work on covering things up and once the makeup and the hair is perfect and the lights are perfect and the camera's perfect, the professional camera, the professional lens with the, with the amazing filter on it, they finally get that perfect image. They select that image and they send it off to a group of professional editors and the editors then take it and they cover up blemishes and they Photoshop and they accentuate and they add curves where things go. And then they project this image onto a magazine cover and we are presented not with reality, we're presented with a hyper-reality. And yet you know as well as I do that for many women, they live under the tyranny of, of this unbelievable, impossible uh, uh, picture of what it means to be beautiful. Right? And that's just one example. There's so many examples of how hyper-reality shows itself. We see movies, we see television. And, and in movies and television, what do we see? We see the picture of what romance should be. And it's an exaggeration. It's a hyper-reality. We see pictures of what sex should be. And it's an exaggeration. It's a hyper-reality. We see the definition, uh, definition of success, what it looks like to be successful. And it's an exaggeration. It's an embellishment of reality. I remember growing up, one of my favorite shows, some of you might remember this show, some of you might not have any idea what I'm talking about, but The Cosby Show. I love The Cosby Show. It's so good. You guys know Bill Cosby? He's the best, isn't he? I do a pretty good Bill Cosby impersonation. You guys want to hear it? Yeah. All right, let's just give it a shot. You ready? You get the jello and you put it with the Theo Huxtable. That's what I got. So anyway, I know. It's pretty good. It's good. Yeah, that gets applause. Anyway, so, uh, so that show is one of my favorite shows. And you know what I liked about that show so much? It, it, this sounds so weird. Some of you guys might understand. I remember sitting down and watching that show and it actually gave me some level of comfort and security just watching it. Because here you have this perfect family, right? And they just, they love each other, they care for each other. But, but if you think, of, if you actually think about it, right? Cliff Huxtable, Bill Cosby's character, was a doctor. Claire Huxtable was a lawyer and they were always home. You're like, that's impossible. And, and what is it? It's, it's, but yet, what we attain to in our minds, what we try to go after, is this sense of hyper-reality. I'll tell you, I see it with social media all the time. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, what we're able to do with those things is we're able to take our own realities and create hyper-realities for ourselves, aren't we? And so I don't like my dinner, well that's alright, I'll just get out my Instagram, I'll take a picture with a filter, and now that, that boring dinner has become this amazing thing now, and, and what is all of that? It's hyper-reality, and, and what Jesus would say to us is, it's food that spoils. You're chasing after an illusion. And while, while chasing after these things, this, this elusive version of success, this illusion, elusive version of security, this elusive version of beauty, if you're chasing after these things, basically Jesus is saying this is food that will perish because it might give you momentary satisfaction, but it's going to leave you hungry time and time and time again. And so Jesus says something so profound. I want you to look back at verse 27 because what he says here, I want you to catch something he says in verse 27. It's so important. He says, don't work for that food. Don't work for the food, the stuff that's going to leave you hungry again. Don't do that, he says. He says this, though. He says, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now here's what I want you to notice. When Jesus comes to these people and he confronts them, Jesus is, this is so important, Jesus is not confronting them because they're coming to him because they, for, for, because they want something. That's not why he's confronting them. In fact, nowhere in the scripture 
do you see Jesus ever confront someone because they're coming to him for something? Never. Dude, that doesn't bother Jesus. Here's what Jesus is actually confronting them on. He's confronting them not because they're asking too much. He's confronting them because they're asking for too little. That's what he's confronting on. Look what he says. He says, you guys are coming to me because you want me to satisfy your temporal appetites. You want me to give you food. It's like, but you guys, I have something so much better to give you. Work for something that will last forever, not something that you're going to have to come back to me again tomorrow and you're going to be hungry for it. Work for something that will last forever. And look what he says. He says, and I will give that to you. That's actually what I want to give you. See, I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis wrote this really fantastic little book called The Weight of Glory. And in The Weight of Glory, this is what C.S. Lewis said. I think this is so in line with what Jesus says. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem, watch this next part, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, what Lewis is saying is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you guys are coming to me because you want me to give you something that's going to give you temporal satisfaction. I actually have something much better for you. You are so focused on the meal that you've missed the Messiah. You're so focused on your stomach that you've missed the Savior. And so he says, I'm not going to give you what you want. Because if I, and I'm not going to let you make me king. Because if I, let you, if I let you make me king and if I give you what you want, it's actually going to blind you from what you need. See, what I think Jesus is doing in this passage, by the way, I think Jesus is, is showing and exhibiting the heart of a loving father, of a loving parent. And, and I could just tell you as a dad, and I know many of you guys are parents, and even if you're not a parent, you understand this, right? That there is a big difference between what your kids want and what your kids need. There's a big difference in between those two things. I got two little boys at home. Actually, they're not at home. They're here. Um, and uh, one is three, one is four. You'll see them running around here. They'll be hanging from the chandeliers. They're insane, all right? I love these little guys. They're awesome. But I'll just tell you, my little boys right now, um, if what I, as an adult, I'm an adult, if you didn't know that, um, at least uh, physically, not mentally. But my little boys, right, they, they as children, they, they know what they want, but I as an adult know what they need. And oftentimes there's a conflict between what they want and what I, what I know they need, right? And I, I'm, just, I'm just being honest with you. If I just said, boys, you can have whatever you want. If I just do that for one day, just one day, anything you want, no holds barred, you can have whatever you want. You know what would happen? I, I almost guarantee this would happen. By tonight, my children would be dead. And I am not exaggerating. They would be dead. They would either fall into a sugar-induced coma and never wake up because they want to eat candy all the time, or they would kill each other. They would, they would get some sharp object, and they would be playing with it, and they'd stab each other or kill each other. They, and I'm not even exaggerating. They would be dead by tonight if I gave them everything they want. And not only would it be unsafe for them if I gave them everything they want, it would also, uh, it would also create monsters out of them. They'd be monsters. We got a little, me and my wife got a little picture of this last Easter, not this previous Easter, but the one before. So last year, some of you are better parents than I am. And, and I know the whole nutrition thing, for most of you, um, the whole nutrition thing, you know, you want to give your kids good things, so you want to give them, you know, vegetables and fruits, and, and you want to give them the right amount of carbohydrates and proteins and other nutrition words, and you want to do those things for them, right? And, and so we try to do that, too. We're, we're pretty good at that. But last Easter, 
we're like, it's Easter. So let's just, no holds bar. Let's just let them have as much candy as they want. Let's just see how this goes, right? And so at one point, at one point, I'm not even kidding about this. I was in a conversation with someone, and out of the corner of my eye, my oldest son is that there's a bowl of jelly beans, and he is at the bowl with a spoon, <laughs> and he is eating it like cereal, just one after another. And in my mind, I remember thinking to myself, that can't be good. <laughs> and, um, and you know what? It wasn't good. That night, he was a monster, and I mean just capital M monster and I'm trying to discipline him I'm trying to get him to settle down and at one point I grabbed him by the shoulders and I said Neam I said look at me and he's just going <laughs> I'm just like he's just insane you know and 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 I and then I thought to myself I can't be mad at it. it's my fault I'm the one who let him have all of that see and I think Jesus is looking at these guys and they're coming to him and they're like give us what we want give us what we want and Jesus says I'm not going to give you what you want because if I give you what you want, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hinder you from seeing what it is that you actually need. And what I have to offer you, you're satisfied with, with something that's temporal, something that's not going to satisfy you ultimately. And I want to give you life. You want bread. I want to give you life. I'm going to give you something so much better than that. And so the Bible says that he won't budge. And he won't give it to him. So here's what happens in this passage. I'll summarize some of what happens. So they go back and forth and... Um, and what we find is that these people have no idea what Jesus is talking about. No idea. So they keep saying, well, give us, give us some food then. And Jesus is like, you don't understand what I'm talking about. And they're like, well, maybe if you do a miracle and give us some food, we'll know what you're talking about. And Jesus is like, stop thinking with your stomachs, guys. So finally, after getting exasperated in this conversation, Jesus finally just says it in verse 35. And this is where we're going to see Jesus in his own words. This is the statement we want to really kind of focus in on today. Jesus declared... So he's done going back and forth, bantering. Now he's declaring. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See, see and Jesus does something pretty profound here. He looks at him and he says, you guys are coming to me because you want bread? He says, but you guys, I am bread. You, you're, you're interacting with me because there's something that you want me to do for you. Because there, there's some appetite that you're trying to fulfill, and you think that if you have that appetite fulfilled, that that will bring you satisfaction. He's like, I'm telling you, I'm not here to, to, fulfill that, uh, to, to fulfill that hunger that you have. I am the solution to that hunger. I'm not here to distribute bread to you. I am the bread. I'm the only one who can give you the satisfaction that your souls are longing for. The thing, that, that, the thing inside of you, and like I said, most of you know this, and if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, if you're not sure what you believe about the whole God thing, my guess is you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that thing that you keep trying to fill and you can't fill it. It's that thing that when you're laying in bed at night after the day is gone and, and you've been trying to suppress it and now you have no option, you're staring at the ceiling and you feel it inside of you. There is a longing. There is a deep emptiness that you are trying to fill within you. And Jesus looks at us and he says, I am the bread. I am the one who's, who has come to fulfill that in you. Well, here's what happens. The Bible basically says, I'll just summarize the rest of the story. Basically, the Bible says that now the, the crowd starts to understand what he's saying. They realize he's not talking about bread. He's talking about something way bigger than that. He's talking about being the satisfaction that all of us are looking for in our souls. And the Bible says they start to grumble. They're like, who is he to say that about? How in the world can he say that? And Jesus looks at him and he says, are you grumbling about that? 
So stop grumbling about it. And then he goes on and he actually, he actually makes it a step, uh, a step greater. He says, does it offend you when I say that I'm the bread of life? He's like, well, let me say it this way then. I'm the bread of life and you have to eat my flesh to partake in me. And the Bible says the people are start to argue among each other, sharply start debating. And then Jesus, rather than saying, let me explain what I mean, he says, no, no, does that offend you? Let me say it again. He says, if you're going to come after me, I am the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. And it's only then that you can truly receive me. And the Bible says that after hearing that, that everyone gets super offended and super frustrated. And these people who just a moment ago wanted to make Jesus king are now arguing about what Jesus just said. And I want you to take a look at what happens in verse 60. Verse 60, when hearing Jesus' teaching, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? See, now they know what he's talking about. And now that they understand what he's talking about, they're like, ah, this is tough, man. Jesus, I, I, you know, if you're, if you're going to give us bread, like we're cool with that. But if you're going to start talking about being the bread of life, I don't know if, we, I don't know if we're ready to accept that. I don't know if we're ready to take that. Look what Jesus says. Aware of what his disciples were grumbling about, Jesus said to them, what a great question. Does this offend you? Are you offended by that? Verse 62. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And so from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I think this is interesting. That in this passage, the disciples, once Jesus finally gets down to the heart of the matter, he says, you're coming after me because you want temporal things, not because you really care about who I am and what I have to offer. You're coming to me with your agenda rather than hearing my agenda for you because I know what you need. And then finally, when they understand, he says, I'm the bread of life, they get offended. He says, does that offend you? Does that offend you that I said that? Okay, how about this? I'm the bread of life and you have to eat my flesh. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he's like, does that offend you? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Bible says, they're like, this is a hard teaching. We can't accept it. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. Jesus never says, guys, guys, let me just, I apologize. You're offended. I apologize. Let me explain what I mean when I say that, when I say that eat my flesh and drink my blood. And I'm just kind of kidding around. Everyone starts leaving. You don't see Jesus chasing them. Jesus doesn't go after him. Jesus isn't like, wait, 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 guys, come back, come back, come back. Let's, let's all get together. I'll do the miracle thing again. You know, someone come over here, get Lazarus, we'll raise him from the dead. Someone kill him, I'll raise him from the dead again. He doesn't do any of that, right? Jesus instead says, it's actually interesting, after he sees everyone go, Jesus actually turns to his disciples, to the 12 that remain. And look what he says to the 12 in verse, uh, verse 67. He says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. So everyone, 20, 25,000 people coming after Jesus. Everyone's there to get bread from him. They're all there. And now Jesus looks at him, and they all wanted to make him king. Now they're all leaving him. So they're leaving. They're all taken off. And Jesus looks back at the 12, and he says, you guys want to go too? Go catch up. They're taken off as well. And this is great. Simon's response in verse 68 is so phenomenal. You guys probably know Simon Peter's, he's notoriously known for saying things that are foot-and-mouth comments. He's the disciple. He's, he's just always talking all the time. And he's usually saying something that's not beneficial for anybody. But now he totally gets it. Look at verse 68. He says, you don't want to go to you, do you, Jesus said. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, 
This is such a good response. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. I tell you, I love Peter's response. I love it. And here's why I love it so much. Because Peter doesn't say to Jesus, Jesus, we always agree with you. And what you just did there, that doesn't offend us at all. We think it's great what you just did. I can almost guarantee you that Peter probably had no idea what Jesus just did. And he probably totally disagreed with it. He's probably thinking, Jesus, what are you doing, man? We just had 25,000 people here. Now you just chased them all away with this crazy talk about your flesh and blood. And what are we supposed to do about that? But I love what his response is. He says this. He says, but where else am I supposed to go? Where else am I supposed to go? He basically, he says this. Jesus, I've seen too much. I've seen too much. I know. I've tried it my way. It hasn't worked. But since I've started following you, even though sometimes it doesn't make sense, even sometimes it offends me, even sometimes we disagree about what I want and what I need, and even all that happens, I've come to know that you're the only one who can actually fulfill the deepest longings in my heart. And he says to him, where else are we going to go? See, I think for some of us, we, when, we, when you begin to taste and see that Jesus is real, when you begin to follow Jesus' plan for your life, even though you might disagree with what that plan is, even though your natural desires might be in disagreement with what God desires for you, you will know over time, and I guarantee many of us do, that I'm in the same boat, that there are times that I am tempted to abandon Jesus. There are times that I am tempted to throw the whole thing away, but I know too much. I know too much. I've seen his work in my life. I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you guys. Every, every time... It has come between what God wants and what I want every time. When I choose what I want over what God wants for me, every time that happens, I'm just telling you, 100% track record, I am wrong. And I'm like, I thought I would be right about this. I thought God was, I thought God had no idea what he was talking about. I thought that his, what he said was outdated, so I did this thing. And man, I'm telling you, I was wrong. And every time I obey God, even though it offends me sometimes, and even though it doesn't make sense to me, every time, 100% track record, he is right. And the reason is because he is the bread of life. So Peter says, it's not that you don't offend me, Jesus. It's not that I understand you. It's not that I always agree with you. It's just that I know enough. I, there's nowhere else for me to go. You are the bread of life. You are this one. Jesus said in his own words, I am the bread of life. So what does this mean about Jesus? What does this mean for us? So let me just close by giving us three implications, just three, and then we'll be Finish. Three implications about what it means when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Here's the first one. Implication number one, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, if that is true, what he's saying, it means that Jesus is, the, the solution to the internal hunger we all feel is exclusively found in Jesus. That the solution to that insatiable desire that all of us feel inside of us, that emptiness, that void, is only in Jesus. Only in Jesus. God, God wants to take us out of hyper-reality and he wants to introduce us to reality, to his reality, to the truth. God wants to take us from, from being satisfied with mud pies in the slums and he wants to introduce us to the eternal life that he has for us, which is like a holiday at the sea. He is the only solution to those things. See, for some of us, when we interact with God, the only time we interact with him is when we want him to fulfill our temporary appetites. That's the only time we ever interact with him. God has something much more to offer you than that. And I'm just telling you that God is less interested in giving you what you want, and he's way more interested in giving you what you need. You're not asking too much, you're asking too little. He wants to give you eternal life. He is the solution to that craving inside of all of us. Here's the second thing. It means that belief is a personal decision. 
Here's what I mean. In this passage, several times Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. For some of us, we're like, man, that is weird. That is just weird. That's like cannibal talk right there. What is he talking about? Well, I just want to let you know, when Jesus says that, it's, it's a hyperbole. Okay? He's speaking hyperbolically. And here's what he's basically saying. He's saying in the same way that it's not enough for you just to believe that food will nourish you, but you have to take it in. You have to ingest it. You have to personalize it and internalize it. He says, it's the same way with me. It's not enough that you just say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God. I have to internalize it. I have to personalize it. I have to digest it. I have to eat and drink of it. And we have to do the same. So listen, for you, listen, when it comes to Jesus, your faith cannot be your family's faith. It can't be your parents' faith. It can't be your life group leader's faith. It can't be your spouse's faith. It can't be your pastor's faith. It can't be your church's faith. It needs to be your faith. He's your bread for the desires that are in your heart. He's the ultimate fulfillment. So if Jesus is the bread of life, it means that belief is a personal decision. You can't just inherit faith. You can't just gain faith by osmosis. It has to be ingested and digested. Here's the third thing. If Jesus is truly the bread of life, then I am to trust Jesus more than I would trust my appetites. I have to believe that Jesus is more interested in giving me what I need than what I want. For many of us, we interact with God in such a way where when he doesn't give us what we want, we tend to think he's not real. But could it be that maybe God understands more than we do, that if he, like with my kids, that if I just give them candy all the time, they're going to be monsters and they're going to kill themselves. If God just kept giving us the temporal desires that our hearts go after, we would be monsters and we would kill ourselves. Jesus wants to give us something greater. He wants to give us what we need. He wants to give us eternal life, which comes through him. So let me just say two things to two audiences and we'll be finished. So first, for those who follow Jesus, for those of you who follow Christ, let me just ask you this question, and you probably know the answer in your heart. How do you interact with Jesus? Do you come to him because of him? because of what he has to offer? Or do you come to him with your agenda, hoping that he will fulfill for you the temporary appetites that you're hoping he'll uh, fulfill in your heart? Or do you come to him for his agenda, what he wants to offer you? And then secondly, let me just talk to those of you who are investigating Jesus and you're not, not too sure what you believe. Listen, if Jesus Christ said that he is the bread of life, that's what he said, not just the provider of bread, but the sustenance himself, that means that he claims, in his own words, to be the thing that our, all of our souls are looking for, the satisfaction that all of us were designed to have. So maybe for you, for the very first time, you need to look at those words. Say, man, is this true? And if it is true, how do I interact with Jesus in this way? Accept and believe him personally and make it my own. And encourage some of you, if you feel like God is calling you, to do that this morning. Just interact with him and pray to him. Say, God... I accept your gift. I realize you are the food. I forsake these other things, these temporary things I've been pursuing. I want the food that doesn't spoil that you offer me. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for your words this morning. And uh, Lord, I'm thankful that you didn't come just to, just to give us food, not just to fulfill our appetites. But God, you came as a solution to everything to the things that our souls are longing for more than we even know, than we have words to express. Father, I'm sure there's someone in here this morning who is just, um, who is trying to fill that gap in their heart with something, and it's not working. And, and Lord, there's uh, <clears throat> maybe pain, regret, hurt that comes alongside of that. 
But Jesus, I pray that this morning that someone would find you to be the bread of life. Someone would come to realize that you, that you don't just give us the things that we want, but you've come to give us what we ultimately need. God, we, we are too short-sighted. We are far too easily pleased. We are satisfied with things that are second best. And you have to offer us something that's primarily the best, you. So Jesus, I pray that we would interact with you not on our terms, but on your terms. I pray that we'd interact with you uh, not in a way where, where uh, we come to you to simply fulfill our temporary desires and make us rich and make us happy and make us healthy and protect our kids. And, and God, I know you care about all those things, but that's not what life is about. There's more to it. Father, I pray that we would that we'd interact with you as if you're the bread of life, that you provide the sustenance in life for us. Help us to take and eat, to digest, to make it personal. Lord, that it's not just some ethereal belief, it's not just some mental assent, but it is really something that we've pushed down, that we've digested, that gives us life. So Father, thanks for your words this morning. I pray that they would transform the way we think. I pray in Christ's name, amen.